We're going to pick it up this morning where we left off last week at verse 14. Romans 15, beginning in verse 14. Paul begins, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricurium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I, will, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we have assembled this morning in your name. We have offered to you uh, praises that extol your greatness. We have anticipated the great day when we will sing with you in your presence, free from the entanglements of our sin nature even. We have celebrated that in the meantime, you are with us and for us. Now, Father, as we continue to worship through the study of your scriptures, I pray that our hearts would continue to be in that state of prayer and praise and reception. As the word is taught, uh, Lord, I pray your spirit uh, would soften the hearts of your children. Mold us and shape us by your convicting and penetrating word. Equip us for what lies ahead this week, this year, this season. Shape our minds and how we understand the world. Show us yourself, show us ourselves, show us our need for Christ's sake. And in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As the Apostle Paul begins to conclude this far-reaching and rather large letter, he strikes here a personal tone, a gentle demeanor. As we read those words, 
I myself am satisfied about you, brothers. We are transported, if you will, back to the first century. We are reminded that the scriptures are a mysterious combination of human and divine. The Spirit, with absolute perfection, inspires the words, and the man, Paul, is writing. Neither are diminished, neither should be dismissed. It's a marvelous and mysterious interplay that God has chosen to pen on paper his infallible, inerrant word. The Spirit inspired Paul's previous corrections. Even though Paul did not personally plant the church in Rome, he knew by way of report that had come to him and divine inspiration exactly how to confront the challenges facing a real first century church filled with real people like you and me in a real place on the other side of the world. The Spirit confirmed it such that Paul could speak boldly to them without question, having never met them. Simultaneously, in the writing, the humanity of Paul shines through. There's a a sensitivity that can be observed in Paul's tone. The things about which he had spoken in the previous chapter, challenges, corrections, are accompanied by this balancing word of encouragement. The humanity of Paul knew that without tenderness, to accompany correction, the people might be discouraged. They might even conclude that the apostle has a poor estimation of them. He's never even met us, never even come to see us. And we'll see in the next section, beginning in verse 22, that Paul did did and does intend to come to Rome and for Rome to then be a springboard of mission work to the west, namely Spain. So as I read and meditated on these verses this week, I believe there are found three things every church needs. Three things every church needs. And so subsequently, that is the uh, unimaginatively clever title to the sermon. Three things every church needs. That means the church in Rome, and that means the church at Hillcrest Baptist, and that means every church between them. The first one is found in verse 15, to be reminded of what has been taught. To be reminded of what has been taught. Verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder. Four little words that ought not be glossed over. I wrote to teach you, yes, but often to simply remind. To remind you of what you 
already know. Raising children helps to reinforce this basic teaching principle. You must repeat yourself. One of my pastor mentors would tell me, right about the time that you are sick of saying it is about the time that people finally get it. And that's not an insult to anyone. Paul wrote to the church in Rome by way of reminder. John MacArthur was once asked who it is that he has in mind when teaching. The answer might surprise you. He teaches to the most mature in his church family. Rather than starving them and catering to the weakest, he teaches to the strongest, trusting that those with questions will ask them and those with maturity will be actively passing it along all week. Thereby, instead of one teacher teaching simple messages to masses, many teachers are equipped to teach many messages all week long. Now you say, that's an interesting strategy. Well, the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? 50 plus years of scandal-free, doctrinally sound teaching and leadership from one man. In a part of America that has grown more wicked than any other over the last 50 years, Southern California, Grace Community Church has only grown in number, grown in influence, grown in effectiveness. And in this way, the spirit of Ephesians 4.12 is upheld and strengthened. The purpose of the gathering on the Lord's Day is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, oftentimes, the best equipping is reminding. Simply reminding of the basics. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. When I was in Bible college studying the, the letter of Colossians, being forced actually to translate from Greek to English over the course of a semester, your own personal expanded version of the letter to the Colossians, there was one thing after spending so much time looking carefully at each word and each phrase that jumped out at me. It is as if the Apostle Paul never got over the cross. As husbands and wives, you remember, those of you who are married, the day that you met the butterflies, you know what I mean? Holding in your flatulence. I'm sorry. <laughs> Remember the elation when you would see them again? Yeah. Admiring men, the, the, the color of her hair, right? The, the shape of her facial features, enjoying almost nothing more 
than to hear the sound of her laugh at your pathetic joke? The twinkle in her eye and her smile when you made her laugh? Man, that's the best, isn't it, man? But sometimes as the years, yeah, I got one. (laughs) One healthy, happy marriage. (laughs) The whole church. Sometimes as the years go on, we forget. We get caught up with our previous disagreements, with the stresses of life, raising children, paying bills, cutting grass, keeping a house. We're not so caught up with that smile anymore, are we? Not so easily enamored or excited at her sudden presence. But when you read Paul's letters, no matter the decades, that never seems to happen with him and the cross. He never got over it. He never grew beyond being enamored with the wonder of Jesus crucified for you. It was always a passionate joy. I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Paul kept it simple. Not only did he keep it simple, he was also criticized for his meek appearance. 2 Corinthians 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He never got over it. It was a criticism that the Athenians, whom Paul spent several years with, the Athenians, uh, they always wanted to hear something new. And here's Paul keeping it simple. It says in Acts 17, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time, look, in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This was a flaw, not a feature. The hearing of something new, however, as you continue to read, didn't lead to conversion, but instead to mocking. New isn't always better. Chuck Smith would say, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true. If the certified genius and apostle Paul could fill a pulpit with simple speech, reiterating the tenets of the gospel with unimpressive appearance, why should we crave something different? Spurgeon said, let eloquence be flung to the dogs rather than souls be lost. What we want is to win souls. They are not won by flowery speeches. End quote. Every Sunday, many slick pastors stand on splashy stages wearing designer clothing and deliver rousing performances. Many come craving something new something different, a new twist. Easily bored with the classic doctrines of the faith we are. And as a result of this flaw, not feature, the prophecy about these days has come true. Paul writes, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will, look, accumulate for themselves teachers 
to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It is tragic to live in the fulfillment of that prophecy. But we're watching it. Pertaining to new ideas and the abandonment of orthodoxy, this is all too true in churches today. Perhaps this has to do with too few pastors reminding the church of what we need to know. What has been taught before. Perhaps fewer would be swept away in the rushing tide of deconstructionism, egalitarianism, prosperity gospel teaching, and social justice Christianity if there were less performances and, look, more boring sermons. Every church needs three things. Number one, to be reminded of the basics again and again. Secondly, every church needs to be encouraged by their under-shepherd. And really, this morning I realized this is incorrect. Every church needs to be encouraged by their under-shepherds, plural. It's a very specific title, under-shepherds. I'm talking about two things. I'm talking about number one, Jesus is our shepherd. I'm not your shepherd. Jesus is all of our shepherd. We follow him. Secondly, I am not an island. We are governed by a board of elders. And that means a whole lot more than some official-sounding people sitting in a room around a table. Every church needs to be encouraged by their under-shepherds. This ought to be understood not as a contradiction, but rather uh, as a as an encouragement. Let's read verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are three things. Look, you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That sounds like heresy, doesn't it? You are full of goodness, you are filled with all knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. This after, you know, 14 chapters of correction. (laughs) Seems a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Well, let's consider, this is not meant to be understood as a contradiction to certain things like what Jesus said in Mark 10, where he said, Why do you call me good? Only the Father is good. So how is it that the church in Rome, or you by extension, are full of all goodness? Same Greek word, by the way. How about the prophecy quoted by Paul earlier in Romans 3? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Also, you are full of all goodness. (laughs) See the... No, this summary in verse 14 isn't a contradiction. Rather, I like this quote from Ralph Wardlaw. This amounts to a declaration of confidence resting on his knowledge of their character as a church... Look, that his admonitions 
would be duly weighed and practically followed. He's confident they would hear him and respond with soft and obedient hearts. Well, what are these three statements intended to convey? If they aren't in direct contradiction with other scriptures, let's break them down, each of them. Number one, full of goodness. This is an expression of confidence, look, of their genuine faith. It's as simple as that. This is to say, Paul is confident they have the indwelling presence of God. You're full of goodness because you're full of who? God. As promised by Jesus in his high priestly prayer. You will be filled with the Spirit. He'll be in you and with you. If you're full of the presence of God, then you're probably full of goodness. You possess the goodness that only the Father possesses. I might say something similar to you from this pulpit. I am confident you will be convicted of patterns of sin or inconsistency in your lives. You will be. If you're not today, you will be in time. I'm confident of that. In time, by the repeated exposure to the word, like this moment right now, your renewed conscience will convict you. The ever-honing hand of the Father will shape you. And the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in you. Might be just a little spark right now but I'm confident that there is more to come in each and every one of us as a family of faith. Why? Because you are good? No. But because you authentically belong to Christ. And that's an encouraging reminder, isn't it? You don't produce the fruit, he does, in you and through you. And so if you are really in his hand, he is really in you, and therefore you will be shaped, your mind will be renewed, the activity of your lives will be sanctified, it will come, church. Because he's faithful, and you are genuinely in his hand. Secondly, Paul says, you're filled with all knowledge. Now, of course, only one is filled with all knowledge, right? Only the Father in heaven is omniscient. It's that word that means all-knowing. Cannot, literally cannot learn something new. So we're not going to go to the Lord in prayer and be like, Lord, you know what I'd really like? Like, I would love a 72 C10 pickup, orange with the white top, the blue bow tie, the mesh round headlights, fleet side, standard, no flashy wheels, white wall tires, all original, carbureted engine. Get that fuel injection out of here. Don't. My point is he's not surprised. Okay? We don't come to him in prayer hoping to inform him of what we need or what's on our hearts or what's on our minds or that someone is sick. He can't learn. Of course, he's the only one who's full of all knowledge. So what is Paul saying? Well, this phrase implies, quote, enlarged acquaintance with the mind and will of God, end quote. Enlarged acquaintance with the mind and will of God. What is this except the results of what Paul speaks of in chapter 12? Listen. 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? Come on, church. The renewing of your mind. It goes on that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You'll know. You will be able to discern what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. I think of this in my own life manifesting itself in conviction about mixed motives. Because my mind has been renewed by the scriptures over the course of decades, I can look back from here to there 15, 20, 25 years and I can discern that my motives then were not what? Perfect. They were not acceptable. They were not good. They were at best mixed. I want to honor Jesus and I want to be seen. I want to honor Jesus and I want to be loved. I want to honor Jesus and I want to be praised. What's happening? The mind could not discern then what the mind can discern 10, 15, 20 years down the line of renewal. You see? This is knowledge that arises out of spiritual discernment. Filled with all knowledge implies a confident union with the Spirit who teaches you, guides you, illumines your path, and gives strength to your words. You are filled with all knowledge inasmuch as you are filled with the Spirit. Isn't that an encouraging reminder? Yeah. Well, finally, Paul encourages them saying they are able to instruct one another. Able to instruct, right there in verse 14. The word is admonish in the King James. That word is a general one referring to, look, regulation of the mind and conduct. This is great. The regulation of the mind and conduct. Man, if there was a a better definition of the objective of any Bible study, discipleship group, Sunday school class, sermon, pick your poison, that on the end of it, afterward, you are, your mind and your conduct are better regulated by the scriptures. Come on, that's, that's the goal. And if that's accomplished, it's been a good day. The regulation of the mind, I'll continue and conduct by instruction, direction, warning, and reproof. Quote, this is a duty which daily lies upon believers in church fellowship in all their associations. End quote. So Paul says, I'm confident. I'm confident that you are able to instruct one another and, look, responsible for doing so. You are responsible for doing so. It was pointed out, however, that our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, my favorite verse in the Bible. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? 
So don't follow your heart. Don't trust your emotions. Ignore them. They're stupid. And listen, quote, a deceitful heart makes a treacherous memory. So we need to be reminded again and again and again. Not merely from elder to body, but one to another. Listen to this from Isaiah 28. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? And we go, what's the answer? Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. Who will God teach? Who will God grant knowledge and understanding? And I hope we're like on the edge of our seat. Yes, who is that? I want to make sure I'm counted among their ranks. I want to make sure I'm poised to receive. Right? I want to have my, my, my bucket ready to catch the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who is it, Isaiah 28? Who? The prophecy concludes, it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And you go, huh? <laughs> it's, not, it's not go to the place and get the illumination and then you walk around like Moses with your face on fire. You just have it all. Oh, precept upon precept. What is that? That's the law. The good law of God that David talks about loving and meditating on. Oh, we are in a tragic state should we abandon the Old Testament scriptures. That's the character of God in the page. Line upon line. And the, the prophecy repeats itself very purposefully. Precept upon precept. Okay, got it. Precept upon precept. I got it. Line upon line. Okay, this is getting boring. Line upon line. Can you give it up? I, I, get, I get what you're saying, precept and line. No, 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 no. Boom, boom, boom. It's the basics again and again and again, here a little, there a little. Alistair Begg talks about children in our gatherings and how um, he says, look, church family, those who are championing this model that we do, we, we're, we want to see three and four-year-olds who can, who can sit through the sermon. And we want to see our church family be patient with each other and other moms and dads as they're training their three and four and two-year-olds to sit through the sermon. Why? Because Alistair talks about it this way. He says, they won't absorb the whole sermon, but they might absorb 7%. 7% of the sermon. But 7% over and over and over again, week by week, month by month, year by year, adds up. Precept upon precept, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. Once again, the, the phrasing here, the expression, you're able to instruct one another, is not so much an instruction, instruct one another. No, it, it's a statement of confidence that the church in Rome is able to care for one another accordingly. Because they're perfect? Because they're all-knowing? No, no. They're sinful, broken, learning, growing, just like you and I. But they're able to do so because 
Their minds are being renewed, Romans 12. Their hearts are being made soft, Ezekiel 36. And they are embracing the duty as if it were a debt that they owe to each other. To remind each other, admonish each other, instruct each other, little by little, again and again. This is encouraging to us. Because like the church in Rome, we too are not perfect. But we are certainly held in that grasp of Jesus, which he says, no one can take you out of my hand. Once you're there, you don't leave. And as such, we can be encouraged that our D-group meetings, our Monday night Bible studies, our midweek gatherings, our intimate times of fellowship, they, they are not in vain, friends. They are by design exercising the duty of Romans fifteen fourteen, instructing one another, reminding one another, encouraging one another. Because you too have a redeemed mind, you too have a soft heart, you too have the indwelling spirit, I have the same confidence in you as does the Apostle Paul for those in Rome. Isn't that an encouraging reminder? Every church needs to be reminded of what they know, what they've already been taught. Every church needs to be encouraged by their under-shepherds. And three, every church needs to keep the gospel front and center. Keep the gospel front and center. Let's read this, beginning at the back half of verse 15. With the word, because... Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of the Gentile community as as if it is an offering he presents to the Lord. The way that the ancient Israelites would present a bull or a lamb or a bread offered to the Lord according to his instructions. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Whoa, right? Six things the Lord hates, seven he detests. Right, pride. So it can't be that. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Not what I have accomplished with Jesus. No, what Christ has accomplished through me. Critical, critical distinction. By word and deed, verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, this is how... This is how Jesus accomplished his work through Paul, by the power of signs, of the, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to, I still can't pronounce it, Illyricum, I can't do it. Can anybody else pronounce it? I can't do it. Illyricum. It's always easier than it seems. From Jerusalem, what he's saying is from here, from the, Look, it's from the heart of Judaism to the heart of the Gentile world. That's the point with this city I can't pronounce. 
From here to there, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Boy, what a satisfying thing to be able to say honestly. And thus, verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Every church needs to keep the gospel front and center. Paul is enamored with the simple message that Jesus came to save sinners who are otherwise doomed because we are born into our sin and our doom. And apart from radical, humble lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives, we will march blindly along with the masses on the road to destruction and eternal damnation. But thanks be to God that he loved us. We didn't love him, 1 John 4. He loved us. And though we were marching in lockstep with the enemy of God, practicing with our weaponry to perform in the military service of Satan himself, he loved us to the point that he died for us. He didn't say, will you turn? If you'll turn, I'll die for you. No, he died for you first. And Paul goes, is there a greater love? Is there a greater story? Is there a greater purpose? Is there a greater mission in all of humanity? He never gets over it. And in this section, he reminds us that every church needs to keep the gospel front and center. Three things we have in common with the Apostle Paul out of this closing portion. Number one, we are, like Paul, servants of the gospel by grace. Of grace, yes, but by grace. Because of the grace given me by God, verse 15, to be a minister of Christ Jesus. We, like Paul, are servants of the gospel. He calls himself a minister of the gospel. The Greek word is luterigos. It literally means servant. It's not king, not boss man, not leader, not messenger, not ruler. All of those words exist in the Greek language. He calls himself a servant. A servant of the gospel by grace. A bold servant of the simple message. Look, Ephesians 2, 8, we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace for glory to receive an inheritance. We talked about that earlier. Ephesians 1, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. 
You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace for glory. And in between Ephesians 2.10, we are saved by grace unto service. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which look, he planned for you personally before the foundations of the earth were laid. Saved by grace. Saved for glory. And in between, saved for service. Like Paul, we are servants of the gospel by grace. Secondly, like Paul, we have only one thing about which to boast. We have only one thing about which to boast. What is it? What Christ has accomplished through me. Paul in Acts 9 is called by Jesus himself an apostle to the Gentiles. An apostle to the Gentiles. I have this unique, specific role for Paul, Jesus said. And in verse 18, Paul says, I will not speak of anything except that which Christ has accomplished through me. And verse 17, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Why? What do you mean proud? It's not what Paul has accomplished. It's what Christ has accomplished. He's a funnel. He's a funnel. You guys ever use a funnel to put oil in your car? You should. You spill it every time you skip that step. I know you do, because so do I. Funnels don't have a very glorious life, do they? The oil is the lifeblood, you know? It's, hmm, it's the oil. You've got 18 different types of oil. This one's synthetic. This one's high mileage. This one is this. And it's just, you put it in there, it keeps everything lubricated. Shut up. But there's a hundred varieties, right? And then over there, like on the, on the bottom shelf funnel right oh yeah I need a funnel they even got them they they got them made of paper it's like you don't even don't don't even bother keeping it just throw it out use it chuck it ball it up Ugh. <sighs> Paul says I'm a funnel does the funnel have anything to boast about does the funnel lubricate the engine? Is the funnel fancy? Does the funnel have all kinds of ornate lettering on the front of it advertising its great features? And the funnel is just, it does its job and it's largely ignored otherwise. And it's us, friends. What would, we, what would we have to boast about? No, that whatever Christ has accomplished through us. Otherwise, we're just sinful, rotten people who regardless of the grace of God and his love and mercy, we still just return back to our sin again and again. Again and again, scripture says, like a dog returning to its vomit. That's how we return to our sin. Why? Because we're stupid. We're just funnels. But if we can come to the end of our lives and say, in spite of me, Jesus worked through me. We can look at our children or those whom we've discipled and say, the Spirit lives in them and I played some small part in that. 
Friends, Jesus paints God the Father like a farmer with a winnowing fork. A winnowing fork separates what you keep from what you discard. And he says, everything that you have accomplished in your life on your own, of your own merit, of your own strength, of your own intellect, it will be the chaff that gets blown away and or burned up in the fire. Only that which, as Paul says it, Christ accomplishes through you will stand the test of God's insight on the last days. And so Jesus said, it's my desire that you would bear much fruit and, what is it? That the fruit would remain. What is that? Standing the test of God's insight. You did that half for you, burns up. Only what Christ has accomplished through you. So like Paul, we only have one thing about which to boast. Finally, like Paul, we have only one ambition. We have only one ambition, and it's there in verses 20 and 21. Thus I make it my ambition to do what? Preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. We'll talk more about the specifics of Paul's visionary ambitions next week. So let's consider this simply in closing. Can we imitate Paul as he imitates Christ? Please. Can we do that, please? Raymond Lowell, the brave missionary to the Muslims, lived by this famous refrain, I have one passion, it is he. Charles Wesley sang, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Two great missionaries, Alexander White and Marcus Dodds, concerning their long Saturday walks, quote, Whatever we started off with in our conversations, we soon made across the country somehow to Jesus of Nazareth. Luther said, We preach always him. This may seem a limited and monotonous subject, likely to soon be exhausted, but we are never at the end of it. (laughs) If we're to have lives like Paul, our hearts must not only see our mission as entirely sacred, but we must give all glory to God. This is so fitting and so right. This is the only way we were designed to live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and how in it we find all things pertaining to life and godliness. There is nothing lacking, nothing incomplete. Not only that, but there is not one wasted word Not one unimportant passage. All are valuable. All speak the words of life. Lord, encourage us today. Encourage us to be satisfied with the cross 
and know that because we are fallen sinful creatures, we often just need to be reminded of the basics again and again. May we leave encouraged and reminded that we are firmly in your hand. You dwell in us. And so we can have confidence that those parts of us that are not yet whole, that are rough around the edges, by grace, you will shape us. You will work it out of us. And you'll use one each other to do that amazing work. And then finally, of course, Lord, help us to keep the gospel front and center. May we never get over it. May we never tire of speaking it. May we never cease or back down from sharing it. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.